Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Before we get to this week's show, I need to ask for your help. Each year, the Modern Art Notes Podcast does a listener survey to help us learn more about our audience and about what you'd like to hear us do the same and differently in the months and years to come. Your responses to our survey will help us keep the program free and will help us figure out what we can do better. This year's survey is now live and will remain live for two weeks. You can find a link to it on this week's show page at manpodcast.com, which is full of images and other goodness. Or you can go directly to manpodcast.questionpro.com. It's important that we have a statistically significant number of responses, so please give us just five minutes of your time at manpodcast.questionpro.com. On to our program. Last week, we previewed the Getty Foundation-funded Pacific Standard Time LALA series of exhibitions, And this week, we're featuring a show that simply would not have been done absent this kind of initiative. It's called Photography in Argentina, Contradiction and Continuity, and it's a broad look at Argentine photography since 1850. My guest is Idure Alonso, who, along with Judith Keller and with help from Fabian Leva Barragan, co-curated the exhibition. It's on view at the J. Paul Getty Museum through January 28th of next year. The Getty published catalog is terrific and is pretty much your only English language opportunity to learn more about Argentine photography. It's available for just $45. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. On the second segment, we'll revisit the conversation I had with Hammer Museum curator Anne Elgood about her exhibition, Jimmy Durham at the Center of the World. The show is now at the Walker Art Center, where it'll be on view through October 7th. But first, Idurde Alonso, after the break. Support comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, presenting Blue Black, curated by influential American artist Glenn Ligon. Inspired by his experience of the Pulitzer's monumental Ellsworth Kelly wall sculpture, Blue Black, Ligon enlists the colors blue and black to pose timely and nuanced questions, touching upon notions of language, identity, and perception. The exhibition brings together a diverse selection of more than 50 works, ranging from abstraction to portraiture, from Norman Lewis to Andy Warhol, and including well-known works by Ligon. Blue Black is on view now through October 7th. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. Experience the high life of 18th century Europe through the eyes of its greatest lover, Giacomo Casanova. Luxury, adventure, intrigue, and seduction. With more than 200 works, including paintings, sculpture, and decorative arts, in a major exhibition bringing his sensational world to life. Casanova, The Seduction of Europe, through December 31st at the Kimball Art Museum. Plan your visit at kimballart.org. Led by the Getty, Pacific Standard Time LALA is a far-reaching and ambitious exploration of Latin American and Latino art in dialogue with Los Angeles. At the Getty Center, Related musical performances start Saturday, September 23rd at 7 p.m. with Sonorama, Latin American composers in Hollywood, Mexican Institute of Sound with special guests Sergio Mendoza and a band led by L.A.'s own Alberto Lopez, play tribute to Lalo Schifarin, Maria Griebert, and other artists in the museum courtyard. Learn more about this show and other upcoming performances at getty.edu 360. And we're back. Idure Alonso, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Oh, how are you? Thanks for inviting me to participate. Before we get into the history and work in the exhibition itself, let's start with the 
form of the exhibition and project, you will. So Photography in Argentina looks at 150 years of photography's history and its intersection with a single nation. So a, a similar such survey of photography in the U.S., for example, would span roughly from Carlton Watkins's famed Yosemite pictures to the present, which is a whole heck of a lot. So leaving aside what you call constructed photography, because we're going to come to that in a moment, how do you go about addressing 150 years? And is addressing 150 years in Argentina meaningfully different from addressing 150 years anywhere else? Well, we actually, I mean, the show is not a survey show. It has a theme. So it's not like we're looking at 150 years of production in Argentina and everything that happened during that time. We have a specific theme in the show. And yes, we want to showcase what is different in Argentina from the rest. So when we were thinking about the show, we look at the production and we thought, what is it different about photography in Argentina? What were these artists portraying throughout the years? And that's how we came up with this exhibition. And one of the ways you've built the show is around the role of the idea of constructed photography. What is constructed photography? Well, let's say the normal way to describe constructed photography is anything that is constructed for the camera. So let's say that you're working with props or you're acting in front of the camera to create a constructed situation. That's how it's usually described. Now, what we want to do with this exhibition is also talk about what we consider as a documentary photography. But in I mean, in reality, the artist is trying to construct an idea. And that's something that is very much related to the construction of national ideas. It is throughout the exhibition that you see that documentary are actually constructed with an idea, to convey a specific idea. Uh, let's say, for example, images of Buenos Aires at the beginning of the, I mean, in the 19th century. And this wish to kind of like portray Buenos Aires as this modern city and how the government was also kind of like pushing for that. And so that's something that uh, the images look, there are documentary, but there's always a kind of construction in every photograph, no matter what kind of a style it is. So I think that idea is going to come up a lot naturally as we, we go through themes, subjects, ideas, and work in the show. So why don't I, I jump into some of the thematic things that you and, and the other essayists raise in the catalog? One of them is the importance of Argentina's immigrant population. So between 1855 and 1869, the percentage of Argentina that was made up of immigrants grows from 35% to 50% to give people an idea of how that compares to the American experience and the American present. In 1870 in the United States, just over 14% of Americans were for, foreign born, which is about the same percentage as now in, in 2017. What are some of the ways in which we see the largeness of that immigrant population in Argentine photography? We made an effort to uh, bring to the exhibition images of the immigrant population. So you'll see several of the studio photographs of that time where you see people uh, from different backgrounds. Like, for example, well, two of the earliest photographs in the show. One is a daguerreotype by Fredericks. It shows the German immigrant community. They're playing cards. They're German. And then there's also an Irish couple. And so we kind of like wanted to show this presence 
and and it's something that is shown through these photographs in in the studios in the 19th century. Another way that we uh, kind of like looked at representing this is that uh, with these images of the children dressed in costumes that come from their the origin of the parents. For example, there is a photograph of a kid dressed in this kind of like costume that it, it is from a very particular region in Spain, in Zaragoza, in that area. So that uh, kind of tells the story and the connection of the families with their origin, in most cases, from Europe. There, there are some absolutely great examples of that in the show, and we'll have as many images as we can on manpodcast.com. One of them is a picture from 1924 titled Two Little Girls from Holland, in which two little girls are standing before a photography studio backdrop wearing, I don't know, those those Dutch hats that turn up around the ears. And another one titled Two Little French Courtesans of Two Children Dressed as if for Versailles. <laughs> They're really great. We also have two photographs of that are actually were made in Spain, but those were found in Argentina. And that's the connection, how the families in Spain were sending the families that had emigra- emigrated to, to Buenos Aires or to Argentina, images of the family back in Europe. So we also have two examples of that. So you can see the back and forward, how these photographs were traveling between the two continents. In the last 10 or 20 years, have photographers currently working in Argentina picked up on that history and played with it in their own ways? Well, I think the best example in the show is Florencia Blanco, where she's playing with these old images, photographic images from the 40s and 50s, these kind of photographs that were made in metal plates and then they were hand-colored. And so she, what she did is she was like uh, collecting those and then she places those in different landscapes in Argentina, kind of like telling the history of these are our ancestors and these are the lands that they came to populate. Uh, so that's a contemporary artist that is talking about this, the immigration population uh, in, in, in the society in Argentina. Yeah, it's an interesting assertion of, of personhood and landscape and relating present use to historical presence. We'll have images of, I hope, those also on, on manpodcast.com. Maybe in a related story, some of Argentina's early photographic history is concerned with nationalism, as as it was in Europe, especially in France. A lot of early French major photographic projects were commissions from, from governments, especially the state, especially, say, in recent or contested lands, such as in the Alps. You know, what might be a good example or two of early nationalistic-minded projects that we see in the show? Well, I think the one of the best examples is the the album by Samuel Booth of the schools in Buenos Aires that was done for the 1889 exposition in Paris. And that album depicts all the construction of the new schools in Argentina. And uh, it tells you basically the story because it's tied to the to the fact that uh, the government had passed the law to have education be you know, for all the citizens recently. So they wanted to showcase that Argentina was this modern country with access to education for all. So what you see in, in the album is all these new schools and the kids in the school 
And uh, it's interesting to know that that's, that was shown in, in Paris in 1889 as an example of how modern uh, the country was. At the Parisian World's Fair, in fact. Yes. The picture that's in the show, which is titled Class Taking Place, Third Grade at a School for Girls, it's dated to, to 1889, has a big South American map on the back wall. So even if even if you're at the fair and you can't get close enough or something to see to see a caption, you can't miss that map. Yeah, you see South America. So you know, one of the other interesting things about these pictures is who Boot was and where he and his brother were from. Oh, uh, Samuel Boot and and his brother they they were like one of the most important photographers of 19th century. They were from Europe, from England, and as it happened with many of the early photographers in the in the exhibition, the first photographers that came into Argentina, and that also applies to the rest of Latin America, were from from Europe, or uh, in some cases also from the U.S. Some of them stayed, some of them and others left. And we have Benito Panucci, who was from Italy, who created some of the earliest album and prints of Buenos Aires in the 1860s. Then he moved on to uh, into architecture and he didn't uh, venture into photography anymore. But uh, you have many of those examples, uh, especially during that time of uh, 19th century. In the 1860s, 70s, it was really hard for photographers in the United States to make a living. Many worked other jobs, a particularly, slightly hilariously, common job for American photographers of that era was to also work as a dentist. <laughs> Were photographers able to make a living and, and, and dedicate all of their professional time to their work, or did, did it work more along the American model? It was more like the American model. And what you also see a lot in, in, in Argentina is the photographers moving to, from one city to another. So they like they create like a studio uh, they advertise in the newspaper, and then they're there for some months, and then they move to another big city. That was very common in Latin America. How does that impact how the interior, the non-urban interior, perhaps, is presented? What is very interesting about, and we're talking about 19th century, I assume, is that most of these albums with views of Argentina, they commonly start with Buenos Aires, and so you have this image of the modern city, and then they move into the interior or the provinces of Argentina. Most of them, they don't go very far away in the interior. But if you, I mean, during that time, if you went out of Buenos Aires a little bit, you were already in the rural province. And so many of the albums, like the ones by Boot or Gonet, they start with Buenos Aires, and then you see the provinces. And so there's always this dichotomy between the modern city, and then the rural interior. And there's like almost like a fascination with that. And I would say, like, like as I said, Gonet and Boot are two of the ones that do that, and also others. So in a single album that someone might purchase in the 19th century, they would have both urban and rural views. Yes, that was the, the most common thing. Yeah, you would have both sides. Of, of this is like Argentina. Here we're modern and you also have the rural area. Who were the expected customers of those albums? Well, wealthy people in, in Argentina, but also people in Europe, because many of these albums were actually 
purchase them in Europe. I mean, if I if I ask like the collectors that that I mean, in in the case of this exhibition, all of them the, are from from Buenos Aires basically. But uh, many of the albums were actually purchased in in Europe, so you can see that they went from Argentina to Europe, and then back. One reason that's interesting to me is because it's so different from the American experience, which is albums tended to be of a thing, a tourist experience in, in the West or the urban experience of, you know, New York or, or San Francisco or wherever. But it has to do with this very strong dichotomy that is part of what Argentina is. No? We have this very important and a strong city, but then you have a huge country that is not very populated. And it's very rural. Well, it's also part of the construction of what Argentina is. And it begins in, in the 19th century, but it goes all the way to today. I mean, always, there's always this dichotomy when you talk to people in Argentina about the city and the interior and the provinces. I mean, that is still very present today. A couple more things on, on the 19th century. Who was uh, Cristiano Jr.? And what was his project? Well, Cristiano Jr. was a very important photographer that came to, first went from Portugal to Brazil and then ended up in Argentina. And he had this vast project to kind of like depict the whole Argentinian country. And of course, he, he wasn't able to do it, but he's one of the most important photographers because he did photograph most of the provinces in Argentina in a moment that it wasn't done before, no? Hadn't been done before. And so how did he do that? With portraits, with landscapes? Mostly landscapes. He also has some portraits, but mostly it's landscapes. He, he's represented in this show, I think, by one, one work. There might be yes, more, which, but... is, which is a portrait. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a landscape. It's a, the orange cellar, the Italian orange cellar. Actually, we have him in the section about immigration because that's a clear reference to, to an immigrant coming from Italy. Yeah, it's a pretty it's a, a pretty great picture full of, of of character. So speaking of the interior, one of the subjects, if you will, that recurs a lot in the show is the gaucho. What is the gaucho or who who were gauchos and how and why did gauchos become emblematic figures in the national iconography? Well, the gaucho is basically the equivalent to to the cowboys in in the US. These were the people that were living in the rural interior and that were taking, they were in charge of the cattle, which is also very important for the economy of Argentina, as we know even today. And so there is a fascination with this image of the gauchos that has to do a lot with, with a book, with Martin Fierro, which is, it's a book about the story of this gaucho. And it becomes very, very popular in the 19th century. And that starts kind of like a fascination, but also the the government, I mean, uh, or the institutional government in Argentina is thinking about what is what could be like a national image of Argentina. What is what is uh, something very particular about Argentina? And basically, the gaucho is selected as this national symbol of the country because again, it's something quite particular to Argentina. Although we also have different types of gauchos in Brazil and and um, other countries, but it's also this image of this very macho, virile man that works in the interior. So it, it becomes this symbol that it then 
basically spreads out to different parts of the society because you have theater plates have been created about the gauchos and you also have people from the middle and upper classes dressed up as gauchos and taking photographs of them in in studios and we have some work that show that too but but as I, as I said everything in this exhibition is kind of like contested with other works from different periods so we we really like this idea of okay we're going to show you what was happening in the 19th century and how this image of the gaucho was being constructed but then we show you how other artists in the 20th century had uh, dealt with the same issue and we have the gauchos of Gustavo Di Mario which are this like kind of like a queer look to the gaucho image that goes against everything that was done in the 19th century. And that's why in the exhibition we have works on different time periods put together. And that's why the exhibition is called Contradiction and Continuity, because there is always this like contradictory narrative in, in this construction of what Argentina is. The Gustavo de Mario's are really striking, gorgeous pictures, but they're also full of, I don't know, that artifice is is the right word, but kind of the artifice you just referenced. Also, Marcos Lopez's picture. Yes, Marcos Lopez is a very well-known artist. I would say that from the exhibition, in terms of the contemporary photographers, he's probably the best known outside of Argentina. And he's known for these very kitschy images and he basically coined this pop Latino movement or aesthetic. And, and that is, I mean, his words are always like very saturated in color, very kitschy, uh, very constructed. And what you see in that photograph is Gauchito Hill or Gaucho Hill, which is it's, it's, it's like a saint. This was a gaucho that existed, Gaucho Hill, and it's revered by some people and people ask the Gaucho Hill for, for miracles. So that's why the piece also has this kind of like an altar around it. Yeah, well, it's a it's a great, obviously constructed picture that is full of symbols and references that will be completely familiar to American audiences: the cross, the sunset, the fiery sunset. Is there a relationship between photographs of gauchos and the way Eva Perón came to be photographed and shown? Well, of course, it's a different way, I would say, because I think the gaucho was supported by the government, this image of, of the gauchos, this national symbol of Argentina, but it was not really directed by the government how the gaucho should be portrayed. In the case of Evita Perón, it's the opposite. I mean, the government was completely in charge of controlling everything about any photographic image on uh, Eva Perón. So what you see of Eva Perón in those in the photographs that we have, you know, it had to go through the control of a government agency that was looking into every image of, of Evita Perón and deciding uh, if it was going to be put out in the press or not. So they really constructed an, an image of her visually in terms of photography. Yeah, there's a whole kind of subsection uh, or two of the catalog of the Eva Perón images and how they functioned both images of, of Evita in, in her own time, but also photographers riffing on, on that history later. A good example might be a picture by Santiago Porter. Uh, yes. Again, this idea of we wanted to like then contest whatever was happening during Evita's time, and uh, Santiago Porter's work is a contemporary piece, 
so the story behind that photograph is it shows a sculpture without the head, and that's Evita as a sculpture. And so during uh, the last Peron's government, he had asked this sculpture to create this sculpture of Evita. And when the coup happened, then the military went into the into this sculpture's atelier, and they basically seized the the sculpture and they threw it in in a river. And so that's when the sculpture lost the head. And then decades later, with uh, Carlos Menem as the president, who was apparently president, we're talking about the 90s, he recovers the culture that was in the river and he puts this culture in this, in this garden that is like the, the summer house that Evita Perón and Juan Perón had. And so there is this image of this culture we, we held ahead. And for me, it's like, this back and forward about Peronism that is exactly what happens in the history of Argentina. You have Peronism and then people that are completely against it and then Peronism coming back. And, and so this back and forward is shown in a great way in that image by Porte. One of my favorite things about that picture is in the sculpture of Evita, uh, roots emerge from underneath her gown seeming almost certainly to reference the sculptor and the state's desire to to show that Evita was rooted in the state and was immovable and permanent. And then, of course, the sculpture is headless, but you can also see around the sculpture these trees, you know, 15 or 20 trees that, you know, all, all survived and are probably older than, than, than Evita was. And they, and they made it. <laughs> They made it, yes. Uh, but Evita is is such a, I mean, such a persistent figure even today. When you go to Buenos Aires, you encounter images of Evita. I assure you. So, it's something that keeps coming back. You know, it's like always there. Another subject that runs throughout much of the show is the presentation of nat- national history through architecture and how buildings stand in for the progress of, of, of the state or the nation. Maybe before we talk about some of those pictures, why did you think that was an important thing to include? There's two aspects to it, because you, you begin to, I mean, as, and we, talk, we have talked about this, the 19th century images were, or even this idea of Buenos Aires as the modern city, where you see how the city is being used as these, like, image of, of modernity, this cosmopolitan city. And also, you know, Buenos Aires was known as the Paris of Latin America. So very European image and cosmopolitan. And, and that's used by many of the artists, not only in the 19th century, but also in, in later periods, in the modernism, uh, with figures like Horacio Coppola or Summer Macarius and, and other other important photographers. And again, you also have the government trying to push for that image, like what Horacio Coppola does, this uh, book that is put together on Buenos Aires, was sponsored by the government. So you see this, this image is actually being created. And what is interesting to me is how that then it gets, it gets uh, contested or deconstructed with more 20th century artists or 21st century artists in the last section of the exhibition. So before we come to those contemporary images, one of the things 
that's really present in these pictures from the 30s and 40s and 1930s and 40s and 50s is an obelisk in the middle of downtown BA. What is that obelisk and why did so many photographers find it important in ways beyond kind of the merely visually anchoring, <laughs> if you will. Well, the obelisk becomes, again, another national symbol of Buenos Aires. It was constructed in the 30s for the commemoration of the, of the founding of Buenos Aires. The, I think it was the 400 years. And it's this, like, very tall obelisk that it, it's also at the center of the city, and it becomes this symbol. And so photographers over and over and over again depicted also as, as an image of this modern city again. And we even have the film by Horacio Coppola where you see how the obelisk is being built. Yes, it's in the exhibition as well. So really, this is another icon of, of the city. So one of the things I noticed in pictures that both included the obelisk and those that don't is picture after picture that emphasizes these long tunnel-like vistas, whether it's down avenues or under concrete freeways or highway-type support structures. Was that something that you think Argentine photographers found on their own at home, or were there European standards to which they were referring and, and measuring up? Why so many pictures that kind of emphasize that dramatic, very, very modern horizontality, urban, urban cavern-like space? I think, I think it's a combination of both. I think that, you know, Buenos Aires went through a lot of expansion during this time. What is interesting also about Buenos Aires is the diagonal lines, I mean, new avenues that are being constructed. So I think that's also it creates a fascination for the artists or the photographers to look at these diagonal lines that are kind of like breaking the normal orthogonal grid of the city. Again, that's also very much connected to to Paris, and uh, that's exactly what you see in Hausmann's Paris, these diagonal lines. So I, I feel like it's a combination, like probably they were looking at the aesthetics of other photographers working in those same lines, but this, these diagonals are being created during this period. They're being constructed right now. So no wonder they were interested in portraying those. You know, in a related story, photographers and painters in New York in the 30s and 40s probably painted Broadway more than any other street. And it wasn't a diagonal in the way the Parisian or Washington, D.C. diagonals were, were super diagonal. But it, it cut an angled path. And that's pictorially interesting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And and Sandro, for example, who actually was a, a journalist, he's known for like, you know, always carrying a ladder to go up and take these photographs on up above. And actually, more, some of the photographs that you where you see this, like almost aerial views are by him. He was like going into these like high buildings and taking photographs on the rooftop. Yeah, a couple of those are really striking. We'll, uh, we'll try to have those on manpodcast.com. You mentioned that the urban space and the obelisk continue to be of interest to artists into the present. Do you have a favorite example or two? Well, not specifically the obelisk, but also by Santiago Porter, the photographs that we have in the last section, Fishers, that basically look at these uh, institutional buildings 
and kind of like showing some kind of decay about them. And that's basically like deconstructing everything that was being done before where you had this like very modern view of the city. And now what he's showing is actually the decay, not only of the buildings, but also of the institutions in Argentina. There's a big part of the show titled The Gesture, and it includes both work referencing Argentina's last period of dictatorship from, from 1976 to 83, and aesthetic gestures in, in conceptual work. What is the link between the two? Well, we we kind of like thought about what it becomes the image of Argentina during the dictatorship period. And we came up with this very strong image of the mothers of Plaza de Mayo holding the photograph of their disappeared children. And that is basically the, a very strong image that gets out from Argentina during this time. We're talking about the 70s, more in the 80s, 70s to 80s, at the end of the dictatorship. But we also thought about this gesture, right? You're creating a gesture by holding this photograph. This gesture of pointing out to something in photography has a history that goes back to conceptual photography in the 60s and 70s in Argentina. So that is the connection. So we present these images of the mothers of Plaza de Mayo, but then we go back and say, well, this gesture of pointing out to something is something that had begun during the 60s and 70s with conceptual photography. You, you referenced the disappeared. Could you explain, I guess with an American audience in mind, why the difference between the disappearance of persons and outright public state-sponsored killing is meaningful? And maybe give a couple of examples of how artists have addressed the particular cruelty that that arises and the difference between them? Well, the the people that disappear that are... One thing is to kill someone and then, you know, the body is recovered. But the disappear are people that uh, the body was never found. And where uncertainty can continue to exist. Exactly. It continues to exist forever. And we're talking about 30,000 people that disappeared during the dictatorship in Argentina. And so artists have addressed this in many different ways. We have a very strong work by... Julio Pantoja, with the sons and the daughters of the disappeared in Tucumán, in, in, uh, in the province, in the northern part of Argentina. And these are portraits of the sons and daughters holding the image, or they have the image of their parents somewhere around them. And these are very uh, strong images. And the, the reason why Pantoja decided to, to make these portraits is because in the 90s, one of the persons from the military that started this disappearance of people in, in, the, in that province was appointed governor. And so he decided that it was important to create this work to kind of like create awareness of the past history of what has happened. Do we know if people posing with photographs in Argentina in, in, the, in the way that you just referenced with the Pantojas are, is an idea that comes out of conceptual practice or is it something that people were doing naturally as, as they took to the streets or, or went to meetings or, or, or participated in civil life, civic life after the dictatorship? 
I think they were doing it naturally. You know, in, in some cases, that is uh, the proof that the person that is disappeared existed. You have a photograph of the person. And so you see in the, in the marches of the people of, of the mothers of Plaza de Mayo, what they have always in their hand, or uh, it's always the image of the person that disappeared, because that is the proof. This person existed and is disappeared now. The connection with conceptual practices from before, I don't think that the people that were doing that were aware of what, I mean, conceptual artists were doing in the previous decades. But uh, there is some kind of connection because artists, conceptual artists were looking at this idea of life as, as art. So it has to do with that. Doing daily things and making them become art. So then farther on, you have artists basically creating uh, protests and making those into works of art, like, like a Grupo Etcetera. Grupo Etcetera, who are the, the group of artists that put together scratches. And the scratches were these like very, or are, these kind of like performances that are done like in front of where the people that were related to the people that disappear, like the military and so on, in front of their houses, for example, to point out so people will know, people that live around them, that among them you have an assassin living next door. Yeah, I should just fill in that these were, uh, that when the Argentine state passed laws or otherwise pardoned people in government who had participated in political murder or political disappearance, which inevitably resulted in murder, that that uh, groups like Grupo, etc., put together these demonstrations that pointed to who those people who had skated without punishment were. And uh, these are very playful demonstrations. You know, in some cases they use, and they use humor a lot. But again, this is a way to point out, point out to something. In a different way, you don't have the image of the person that disappeared, but, and that's a shift that is also interesting. Now we're not talking about the person that disappeared. Now we're talking about the perpetrators. Yeah, a large community response to something that happened in secrecy. Yeah, because uh, that's another change that happened in the late '80s. Is that then you have artists creating works of art outside in the streets to kind of like create awareness. It's like uh, El Siluetazo, which is a very important like performa performative uh, work that happened in the beginning of the 80s, where people were in the streets invited to create these silhouettes, empty silhouettes, and then place them everywhere throughout the city in Buenos Aires. And these were thousands of silhouettes that were created by regular people in the streets which obviously created a very powerful message. This, these were the silhouettes of the people that disappeared. So you have an engagement with the community. There's a great Eduardo Gil picture of that. Mm -hmm. Yes, there's two photographs by Eduardo Gil of, of El Siluetazo, yes. And one of them has a couple of policemen or military types standing in front of these silhouettes. It's, it's really affecting. So, so to wrap up, before this book and this project, how easy was it or how common was it to find Argent essays and, and histories of Argentine photography in English and readily available in America? 
No, 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 not easy at all. Impossible. <laughs> Impossible to get uh, information in English, even in Spanish. It's kind of like a scatter. And, and that's, that, that's basically the history of Latin American photography, that everything is like scattering books here and there, articles, uh, but you don't really have a lot of publications that are just focused on something. And, and in the case of Argentina, the same happens. And we, we don't really have information in, in English about it. And so that's why for us it was very important to put together a publication that uh, with the most important scholars in Argentina on, on photography that will tell the story about, about these themes. So it's early days. As we're taping this, the show is about to open and and the book is out, Three hundred and a big 350-page book. Do you have a sense yet of how the show and the publication will influence how Argentine photography traffics in the U.S.? Do you already have a sense of your colleagues at other institutions thinking about the thing more than they were a couple of years ago? I don't know yet. So I really hope so, because the truth is that in, uh, there is not like very relevant collections of Latin American photography in any U.S. museums. I mean, you have some collections uh, in SF MoMA, Houston, and uh, MoMA New York, and that's basically it. Uh, so there hasn't been like a strong interest to develop a well-thought collection of Latin American photography in the U.S. And I think it's a missed opportunity. Uh, also, I know it's hard because first, the literature is all in, in Spanish. And not only that, most of the artists that you see in the show don't have gallery representation. So in order for curators to learn about the work of these artists, you basically have to go to their studios. That's what we did. We went five times to to Argentina, and we visited most of the artists in their studios. There's one gallery that uh, works with photography in Buenos Aires, and that's it. So, you know, you were talking about the 19th century photographers, but I would have to say that it's not very different today in Argentina. Like many of these photographers, besides having their, you know, artistic work, they also have other types of work that they have to do in order to survive. Uh, Julio Pantoja works, uh, is a journalist for the press, takes, he takes photographs for the press. Gustavo Di Mario works in fashion photography, and uh, as many of them have other jobs, because there's not a real market. And, and that affects also uh, the, the basic, I mean, the knowledge of what is happening in terms of photography in Argentina, outside of Argentina. Well, it's a, it's a fascinating book, and I can't wait to see the show. Idore Alonso, thanks so much for speaking with me. Thank you. Support for the Modern Art Notes podcast comes from the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University, presenting Cindy Sherman, Imitation of Life through December 31st. Organized by The Broad in Los Angeles, this expansive survey of over 100 works makes its only appearance outside L.A. at the WEX. From Sherman's iconic untitled film stills through her most recent series of aging divas from the silent film era, Imitation of Life highlights the artist's engagement with cinema and celebrity 
and her career-long investigation of the influence of mass media on identity and ideas about women. The exhibition is accompanied by a star-studded audio guide featuring the voices of Miranda July, John Waters, Molly Ringwald, and more, and it closes a calendar year in which every artist featured in the Wex Galleries is a woman. For more information about the Wexner Center's programming, go to wexarts.org. The fall season has begun at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan, and if you become a member today, you can see exciting exhibitions like Louise Bourgeois, an Unfolding Portrait, before the crowds. Explore Bourgeois' fascinating creative process through prints, sculptures, paintings, and more over the course of her remarkable career. Member previews begin Wednesday, September 20th, and it opens to the general public on Sunday the 24th. Get more info at MoMA.org and plan your visit today. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents Memories of Underdevelopment, Art in the Decolonial Turn, 1960 to 1985, at its downtown location from September 17th through January 21st, 2018. In collaboration with the Museo Humex in Mexico City and the Museo de Arte de Lima, Memories of Underdevelopment brings together artistic practices that, although evidently related, have until now been treated separately. Showcasing conceptual and performance artworks, this exhibition will shed new light on such well-known artists as Lina Bobardi, Elio Oidesica, and Ligia Pape, as well as lesser-known artists in Colombia, Uruguay, Chile, and Peru. For more information, visit mcasd.org. Welcome back. My next guest is Hammer Museum curator Anne Elgood, who's Jimmy Durham at the center of the world, open to wide critical praise at the Hammer Museum earlier this year. The exhibition, the first U.S. retrospective of Durham's work in 20 years, is now at the Walker Art Center in Minneapolis. You can see it there through October 7th. The segment you're about to hear was recorded in February 2017 when the show was up in L.A. Anne Elgood, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. The title of your uh, lead essay in the catalog is Jimmy Durham, Post-American. What does it mean to be post-American in this context? Well, that's a great question. I and, and one that I really felt myself not necessarily having attributed the term to the idea yet, but in the course of working on the show, it was a question that I kept asking myself. What does it mean to be an American artist who has chosen to leave the U.S., uh, to be an artist who is fundamentally oriented internationally, has a real sense of the benefits of cosmopolitanism, is also politically averse to notions of nationalism, doesn't believe that certain borders are ethical, <laughs> and a lot of these kinds of questions and I, I kind of landed on this idea of post-American in part for the provocation that it suggests, but also because it's, it's a, adding post to various terms has been something, of course, that has been done in art, art, in art context, but also in politics and issues of representation, et cetera. So I was thinking about you know, the idea of post-feminism, post-Black, as was explored um, by Thelma Golden at the Studio Museum. And in fact, this idea of post-Indian has also been something that's been examined. And, and I thought, you know, to, to and th those are terms that are used sometimes rhetorically, 
you know, sometimes um, with great hope for what it might suggest for the future even. And, but also they, they always tended to make me bristle, you know, um, the idea of post-feminism, for example, you just think, well, we're so far from being at that place where feminism has somehow accomplished all of its goals. And we all know that the idea of a post-racial society has, was of course talked a lot, uh, about when Obama was elected and aspirational as it is, was also pushed against, of course. So I, I wanted to think about those questions, but I also didn't want to use the term post-Indian or even anything that was so specific to a particular attribute of Durham. But I was intrigued by this idea of post-Americanism, um, which is obviously not a category <laughs> that I had heard before, but seemed somehow to allow me to think through some really important things ab about this artist and, and his practice, but also his politics, his philosophy, and his ideas, all of which, you know, are woven into the work fundamentally. So it was kind of this question, you know, is he that? And if so, what is that? With that as background, it's probably important to start a conversation about Jimmy Durham um, with a little bit of biography. Um, sure. you know, I kind of subscribe to the T.J. Clark idea that it's always dangerous to um, start with biography or to read biography into an artist's work, but I don't see how that's avoidable here. <laughs> um, so could could you kind of give us the, 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 the crisp Jimmy Durham life story? He was born in 1940 in, in Washington, Arkansas, and he's part Cherokee. And we can get into some of the... Um, issues around registration, enrollment, and some of, some of that stuff if you want to. But, um, yeah, exactly. Um, he left home very young uh, at the age of 16, and he joined the Navy. I, I have yet to ask him this. For some reason, I always forget. But I, I, I think he may have even joined the Navy before he was 18. But he sort of wandered around for some period of time joined the Navy and traveled a lot in Southeast Asia, actually got out of the Navy and moved to Texas, originally to Houston, to originally to Austin and, and then to Houston and immersed himself in really the literary world there, particularly the poetry world. And he had, he, he started writing poetry. He's been an artist fundamentally He'd learned to carve from his father and his grandfather and was always making things. His father also made a lot of furniture and just things that were handmade were around the house. And he met a Swiss guy in Texas who said to Jimmy, you know, you should come visit me at some point in Switzerland, in Geneva. So Jimmy did and ended up staying there for four years and enrolling in the fine arts school there. So he studied art in Geneva from 1969 to 1973. And he, in fact, loved being in Europe. Um, obviously, he's near the UN. He's always an activist throughout his life. So he's involved in activities around human rights and being 
in that city, of course, there was a lot of activity going on. But he was also studying art very intensely, and he wouldn't have come back to the U.S. at that time except for really the moment when he decided to come back was the uprising at Wounded Knee in South Dakota. So he's following the activities of the American Indian movement, and he's feeling a certain pull to be involved. And it was that event that really shifted him um, to the idea that he, he needed to come back to the U.S. So he comes back. By the time he gets to Standing Rock, um, the confrontation, which lasted 73 days, I believe, between the American Indian movement and the people on the reservation there and the U.S. government was over. So he kind of arrives right at the tail of that and gets involved, you know, joins AIM, becomes very active with the organization, and initially doing a lot of fundraising. They needed to hire attorneys. A lot of people were going to trial. And so he was mostly in the Midwest initially, And then AIM decided to create a kind of a branch called the International Indian Treaty Council, which Jimmy became the director of, and that took him to New York. So he's in New York working for AIM, working very closely with the UN. A lot of the impetus behind the International Indian Treaty Council was to fight for rights for indigenous peoples in North and South America. So moving away from a national purview and thinking more internationally, which is something I think is fundamental to how Jimmy thinks about this kind of human rights work, that it should be international. And also it was very practical. The U.S. government had not proven itself to be trustworthy in many of these types of negotiations. And so why continue with that? You know, he wanted to have a, a larger conversation. So he's in, he's in New York working at the ITCC until 1979 when he retires from AIM altogether. And that puts him in New York really at this incredible moment. He essentially goes back to making artwork in the New York art world of the 1980s. And that's where he begins to really... Um, show his work and become part of of the artistic community there. Yeah, that's a good place for me to jump in because I think that makes really clear that while he while Durham went to art school, he is not a product of of MFA world. Um, he, he's a product of the movements um, you referenced. Um, I guess the big question about his work and and I think that's in this show is: Are there some specific places? we see the influence of his work um, in social justice world in the work. Yes, I think in, in insofar as the primary concerns about how the history of the United States and its founding on a, on a genocide of a people has informed so much of not just the history, but the, um, in a way, 
the questions around race and the issues of representation that sort of come up in all aspects of our lives. But also, I think I would argue in in a kind of psychology of, of this country. So he doesn't necessarily, he doesn't, in fact, make work that responds to specific events within activist movements. You know, he doesn't, um, for example, he didn't make a piece about Standing Rock. Um, but these issues of, of our history and how it's informed our national identity are really woven into the work in, in very particular ways. And one of the things that I think is very important about Jimmy's work, especially the early work, where the material choices like animal skulls and animal feathers and fur and, and bones, as well as other natural materials, he was very aware would um, would for some read very stereotypically as the kind of materials an American Indian would use in their work. And, you know, he, he did that deliberately. He also did that because those are materials that he's quite drawn to and, and really just does genuinely love. But he wanted from the very beginning to critique certain expectations that an audience would have, particularly an American audience, but even an international audience. And because of that, he was often described as making work about himself, about his own biography, about his own identity. And he would usually counter with the idea that he's not making work about himself. He's making work about American identity and American history and fundamentally about the colonizer more than the colonized. And I always felt that that distinction was incredibly important. Can you think of one or two works that are a, a, a good visual example of that or a good visual summation of that idea? Well, the work that he made in 1984 for his show at the Alternative Museum, all of which consisted of animal skulls and various other materials, natural materials combined with um, usually found man-made or industrial materials. And that was a body of work that all had animal skulls in it. And that combination was important in the sense that he wanted to, one, one of the ways to kind of counter the stereotypical um, read of some of those natural materials was to combine them with unexpected elements. So you see traffic barriers and police barriers and car parts and things like that in those works. It's also important to note that this is 1984 and the primitivism show has happened at MoMA. So Jimmy's show opens in December of that year. So there was a lot of discussion, of course, around the primitivism show and I think for me, my read on it is also that while there were uh, works by indigenous people, including American Indians, as well as other um, people around the world, 
in the primitivism show juxtaposed to the works of modern masters. Um, all of those works, of course, are presented as anonymous. So for Jimmy to make this work that looked to be the work of an American Indian, but was authored very clearly, was an important gesture as a counterpoint in some ways to the, the issues that were raised in the response to the primitivism show. Another work I would point to in relationship to this issue is a piece he made a year later called On Loan from the Museum of the American Indian, which to me is his first overt work of institutional critique, which predates a lot of institutional critique by American artists that, that we associate with what I think of as, in a way, kind of the second wave of institutional critique, which is the younger generation of uh, people like Andrea Fraser and Mark Dion and Fred Wilson and others. So he makes this work, which doesn't exist anymore, and if you recall in the exhibition, I've gathered together elements from it and put them kind of recessed into the wall with an explanation about what that work was. But it was a really important piece because he was responding both directly to the Smithsonian Museum of the American Indian. At that time, there was an outpost in Manhattan, which is still there. But there was a lot of discussion in the 80s about the larger institution that would later be built in Washington, D.C., which opened in 2005. On the National Exactly. Mall. And so he was part of some of those conversations around the museum. What, what should it be, um, you know, gathering together, I think, different people in the community to have those conversations. Jimmy was always very skeptical of that museum, but also, in a way, any museum that was focused on a particular ethnic or racial group. So he, he was also struck by the singularity of the name of the museum. And this is where Jimmy's humor, I think, really comes into play. This great balance he has of being able to use humor, but also to take up, of course, very serious topics, but also things that he's, in fact, quite angry about or clearly concerned about or have particular political content for him. But he thought, you know, the National Museum of the American Indian, you know, how odd. And so decided that he would make himself that American Indian and did a whole display in a museological language that you would see in a, more likely in a, in a natural history museum that presented this, this American Indian, including pictures of his family and personal things, as well as these fake artifacts he would make and these fetish objects, one of which is my favorite, which is called Pocahontas's underwear. So, so he was thinking about that museum, but he was also thinking about museums more generally and what we understand when we enter a museum to be the, the display mechanisms that are used and, and the kind of voices that are present and the 
sense of objectivity often that accompanies those objects and those kinds of issues. I'm glad you brought up the sense of humor that is in a lot of the work and Pocahontas's underwear, I think we'll have a picture on manpodcast.com, uh, is a really good example. It's a really funny piece. Um, you referenced the kind of set apart within the show. Um, I, I, I don't know if it's going to remain the same as the show travels to to the Walker and the Whitney and I think to Saskatoon, although the Saskatoon venue may be not finalized yet. Um, or at least not have dates yet, um, but but that worked really well at the Hammer. Um, you know, one of the things I thought about walking through the exhibition is that Durham is using found objects um, and he's assembling them, but I don't know if I ever really felt like the work felt within the European assemblage tradition, you know, Picasso through mm -hmm. Dada, or the American assemblage tradition, whether of the East Coast variety in Rauschenberg or of the West Coast variety of, you know, George Herms and um, and so forth. Do you agree with that? And if you had to characterize where his using of that thing comes from, um, how would you um, point your finger at it? Where, you know, does it does it come from activism? Does it come from somewhere else? Obviously, I haven't figured it out. Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think, and it's true, I don't actually really put him with other artists using assemblage that, I, I like you, I've never been sure quite where to place him because I don't think he's, in fact, aligned with any of those groups specifically, even though he would have been more or less aware of certain practices. I think the, I think the assemblage impulse for him comes from a few places. One is quite simply an absolute love of materials. So he's drawn to such a range of materials, even though there's a lot of consistency over time as well. And I think his instinct was often to put them together. He's also drawn to asymmetry and a kind of precarity and and resistance to notions of mastery and genius that I think also can lead an artist like Jimmy toward wanting to put things together in that way. That said, it's never random. Um, I think there's very careful consideration of the material choices and how they are put together. I think there's also real practicality to his uh, use of assemblage in that he had to find a lot of his materials. He wasn't able to buy a lot of materials. So he would use things that he found literally on the street. He would also use a lot of materials that were given to him or natural materials that were just available uh, around him. When I think of other artists that I would associate him with, I realize sometimes that it's artists he probably wasn't aware of. So being in L.A. now, um, I think of him a lot with artists like John Outerbridge and Noah Purifoy, who also, of course, used a lot of found objects and materials and also worked in assemblage. And in some ways, for similar reasons around, you know, finding those materials 
in a way that was feasible for them at the time. But also, I think, with a very strong connection to the political, economic uh, characteristics of those materials. I mean, more than any artist I've, I've ever worked with, Jimmy is, he studies his materials and knows a lot about them. So he's not just making choices based on what he know will work formally or even because he's drawn to something because it's beautiful, although those things, of course, enter into it. But there's a much more complex series of issues that are that enter into it for him in making those choices. The, the only relationship between the things I brought up and, and, and that you talked about um, and and other American artists would, would, would be, I mean, there is a sense of humor in, say, Wallace Berman yeah. and, and George Herms. And, and, and that's there in Durham. But like, like, like you said, I don't think there's any reason to believe he, you know, cares, <laughs> you know, that that's important to him, that, 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 that being, um, after those two artists, one of whom is still alive, George Herms, um, matters to him. Yeah. Did, you know, so many sculptors of Durham's generation pushed toward, or at least ended up, um, working at monumental scale, you know, filling whole buildings, you know, like Dan Flavin would and did, um, or artillery sheds like Donald Judd did. I mean, I'm not sure you can get much bigger than filling an art a couple of <laughs> artillery sheds in the Western desert. Um, Durham never got interested in that. Have you thought about, I mean, th there's a real consistency to scale mm -hmm. throughout his entire career. Have you thought about why that's important? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's really important and it's quite notable. You know, when you walk through the show, I realized I, I wanted, there are a couple of larger scale pieces in the exhibition and I think it's, it is important that he will push to a certain degree, but you also become very aware that most things are human scale, you know, or slightly larger or smaller. And he's, definitely not interested in monumentality. And I think that became more acute for him when he moved to Europe in, in relationship to architecture, architecture specifically. But um, I think it's always been in him that he, he, he has a, a desire for the work to be approachable in many ways. I think he wants people to interact with the work in a way that feels intimate on some level and also not overwhelming, not overbearing. And monumentality, I, I think he recognizes it as a kind of a strategy that can be, can lead to, to ideas of spectacle, but also, um, just doesn't allow for the type of interaction that he wants people to have with his work. So when he goes to Europe, he becomes, and again, in a very humorous way, intent on creating alternatives to the kind of monumentality he, he was seeing just in 
aspects of European architecture that are very common to European cities, like huge archways and fountains in the middle of plazas. So at that time, for example, he started his series of Arc de Triomphe for personal use, which he's now made several different versions of, which are these very funny, rickety, simple uh, arc forms that are human scale and meant to be used by an individual. Um, he also has great pieces like one of which is in the show, as is one of the arcs, uh, a piece called a Stone Rejected by the Builder. So finding, and he, he did find the one that's in the exhibition, he, it is a stone that he found behind his studio and looked to have been carved to be, you know, a brick of some kind for a building and then wasn't used. Ergo, it must have been rejected by the builder, but then he paints it all these beautiful colors and kind of presents it as this art object, this desire to, in, in some way, elevate a rejected or forgotten material to the level of art, but also to pull something out of what would have been a much more monumental form and pay attention to this very small part of it. So uh, this is a subject that comes up a lot for him, this question of monumentality and and offering an alternative of some kind to that. And the largest scale work he's done, of course, are the smashed cars. And he also did one uh, small Cessna plane. And it's interesting because, and the Hirshhorn, of course, purchased one and now it's in front of the building. And in some ways, those works are better known to American audiences, not necessarily because the Hirshhorn purchased it, although that's, of course, going to add to that. But because they, you know, they're kind of sexy and provocative. And so there's been more images of those circulating than maybe other of his work. And although Jimmy, I think, loves those pieces and has made a few of them, I think because he's also skeptical of that on some level, you know, that that would be the work that has a kind of wider visibility because of this very issue of monumentality. One of the nice things about uh, the show at the hammer is uh, I, I, there's a lot of work on view, but it never feels like spectacle or any or, or monumental spectacle or anything of the sort. And at this particular moment um, in American history and in, and in American politics, um, Appointed conscious rejection of spectacle is um, is meaningful. Um, I mean, I'm finding myself uh, when looking and thinking about other other exhibitions and presentations. You know, really, um, um, you know, that I'm viewing spectacle with with a lot of suspicion. Yeah, but... me too. <laughs> yeah, Anne Elgood, thanks so much for speaking. Thank with you me. so much. It's been fun. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.